Welcome to the Journey Church Podcast. We hope that this message will challenge you and encourage you on your journey of faith. If you would like to learn more about Journey Church, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and online at thejourneychurch.cc. Now enjoy the message. All right, guys. Well, we, we have a standoff message, a standalone message this week, and I want to share with you guys. And the topic I feel is very, very important. And then next week, we're going to be diving into our Journey DNA message series. You don't want to miss that. That's going to be awesome. And we're going to be sharing about a bunch of other stuff coming up this year. So you want to be here for that. But this week, it's a standalone. This week, it's a one-off. And you want to take this message. And if, if for some of us in the room, it, it may not really hit us like like it's going to hit other people. We, we may hear this and go, I know that. That sounds good. I know that. I do that. Yes. Amen. And that's awesome. It's your job then to take this message and send the podcast to somebody else who needs it. Amen. It's your job to be an encouragement to somebody else, okay? If you're in the room this morning and, uh, and you're feeling like I have felt many times before, this message is going to be for you. Do me a favor, if you would, would you just close your eyes for just a second? I want to read something over you this morning. I want to speak something to you this morning, and I want you to focus for just a second. Listen to me when I tell you this. Listen, listen, shh, listen. You are, you are loved. You are adored. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are whole. You are valued. You are strong. You are bold. You are a child of the living God. You are worth living for, and hear me, you were worth dying for. You are the reason that God put on flesh. You are the apple of God's eye. You are his favorite. If you were to visit God's living room, sitting on the mantel, would be an 8 by 10 picture of you. When he pulls his wallet out and shows off his favorite child, your picture is at the top of the list. You are loved and you are adored. You can open your eyes. Some of us, we needed to hear that. Some of us, we came to church this morning, and the thoughts that were running in our head were completely counter to the things that I just read to you. For some of us, we didn't wake up this morning going, thank God I'm loved by God. Thank God I'm a child of God. We woke up this morning going, it's another day, right? You woke up this morning, and you thought to yourself, man, I wish I could be better today than I was yesterday. You woke up thinking maybe to yourself that you weren't worth anything. You're not worth loving. You keep making the same mistakes over and over again. What is the point? And I'm telling you today, this is the point. You are loved and you are adored. Amen. You are loved and you are adored. There is a a problem that exists within inside humanity, in humanity, in this world. And sadly, the same problem exists within the church, and it should not exist within the church. And that problem is the problem of shame. It is the problem of shame. Shame wreaks havoc on our lives. Shame wreaks havoc on, on us. And, and the last place that shame should have its, its anchors, its claws dug in, is, is in a believer's life, in a follower of Jesus Christ's life. You should not have shame floating over you like a cloud. You remember the Peanuts cartoon? You remember that? Charlie Brown? You remember what was the one with the dust that was always, what was, it, Lin- was it Linus? Linus had the blanket and he was pulling them, but he always had dustiness. That's shame. Shame should not be following you like the dust cloud follows Linus. Come on, you're a child of God. You're a child of God. Um, my wife and I, Pastor Kim, we, we work out together. 
Now, Pastor Kim is in much better shape than I am right now. See, I said right now, amen. Don't have to amen that right now. We just, shh. Right now, we both are in good shape. She's just in better shape than me. And when we go to the gym, and one of the things that she always wants to do when we go to the gym, the first thing that she always wants to do is she says, you know what, hey, are, are we going to go ahead and walk? Now, you think, well, walking doesn't sound bad, but you haven't walked with Pastor Kim because Pastor Kim doesn't do normal walking at the gym. Pastor Kim gets on the treadmill, and she elevates that bad boy to 12.5 incline and 3.5 speed. And she is going. And so, look, she holds on for a minute. And she lets go for a minute. She holds on for a minute. She lets go for a minute. I hate the treadmill. I do. I hate it. And the other day I was like, I just want this to be over with faster. Now follow my logic. I want it to be over with faster. I don't want to sit here and walk at 12.5 incline, 3.5 miles an hour like Pastor Kim. I want to get it done quicker. So what I started doing is I started jogging. Now I know some of y'all laughing right now. I started jogging. I, I jogged. And I got on the treadmill and I started going, right? And, and I kept at about three, three miles an hour on the treadmill. Slight, slight incline. Three miles an hour, slight incline. And I'm running. And I'm running. And I'm starting to feel parts of my body. I'm starting to feel pain in parts of my body that I've not had pain before, right? And I'm feeling joints and things. My legs are, are, are getting tired and and, and I'm going and I'm running, and, and we get 10 minutes into this, y'all. I ran for 10 minutes. No, I'll say it again. I ran for 10 minutes. Thank you. There, there you go. That, I think y'all are, this is hard today. There's no edification in this room right now at all. But I ran for 10 minutes, y'all, and I got done. And do you know what happened when I got done running for 10 minutes and I got off the treadmill? Do you know what happened? Nothing. I was in the same place that I started. I was in the exact same place. And that's what shame does for us. You see, when shame starts popping its head up in our lives, it's that low-lying hum running in our lives. It'll cause us to get on a treadmill of works-based religion. It'll get us on a, a treadmill of whatever it is that we're trying to find that will move us forward and move us further ahead. It, it causes us to jump on that treadmill, and we just keep going, keep going, and we don't go anywhere. We exert a lot of energy. Our thighs hurt. Our hips hurt. Our knees hurt. <laughs> but we don't get anywhere. We find ourselves in the same place that we were when we started. Shame, shame has, has helped shape my identity throughout my life. That's what it does. Maybe it comes as a shock to you that the pastor dealt with shame, has dealt with shame, still deals with shame. Maybe, maybe it's like a shock. Wait, wait a minute, you're a pastor. You're not supposed When you wake up in the morning, don't you just levitate and float through the house and talk to angels and stuff? No, what happens with pastors? No, not at all. No. We're normal people just like you. Y'all know if you've been coming any time and length of time, you know the deal. Like, my pastor's human. Amen. Right? But it shapes your identity. Because that's what it does. Shame shapes your identity. Now, there's a difference between guilt and shame. There's a difference between the two. So guilt, when I, when I feel guilty about something that I've done, guilt says I've done something wrong or I've done something bad. That's what guilt says. Guilt says, I've done something bad. You know you, and you do something counter to your character, your integrity, who you are. You know when that moment happens, don't you feel it on the inside? There's a check on the inside. We can get churchy about it. We can say, it's a conviction. Y'all remember, that's churchy language, right? I felt convicted. What you did is you felt 
guilty for how you responded because you recognized I did something wrong, right? That's what guilt says. But there's a difference between guilt and shame. Shame, shame doesn't say I did something bad. Shame says I am bad. There's a huge difference between the two. There's a difference. See, one says, I did something wrong. I did something bad. And that can prick us. That can motivate us to do something, to to bring about change. But if I'm in shame, if I've adopted the identity of shame, it is almost impossible for me to get out of the situation that I'm in. It is almost impossible for me to change the way that I think about myself. It's impossible for me not to get on that treadmill and kick it up to high gear. Do you hear? So conviction and guilt, you can use that same, same language. Conviction is the churchy word for guilt, but, 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 you know, the other word for shame would be condemnation. And if you know, as a child of God, there should be no part of your life whatsoever where you are living condemned. Do, do you hear me? There should be no part of your life where you're living condemned. There should be no part of your life that you've looked at and determined that and rendered unfit for use. You don't get that option. You don't get to condemn yourself. You don't get to look at your life and say, I'm rendered unfit for use. You didn't determine your value in the first place. Come on. I said this last week when I was preaching to Hilton Baptist. Y'all, I went full blown on them. They didn't know what they were getting last week, but they loved it which was awesome because now they'll invite me back, right? But, but I used this illustration last week. I said, you know, if I had a $100 bill, I had to go to a $100 bill because I started with a 20 and said, who wants a 20? No one raised their hand. I said, dang. I said, well, let's make this a $100 bill. Who wants a $100 bill? Hands went up. I said, okay, I see where you're at. But what if I said I had a $100 bill right now? And I said right now, I will give you a $100 bill. Would you like a $100 bill? Would you raise your hand if you would like a $100 bill? Come on. Three, why is nobody, why nobody wants to, I don't need a hundred dollars. Yeah, you would. If I gave you a hundred dollar bill and said it's free, you would take it. Amen. Let's not be bashful. Everybody's hands up. You want a hundred dollars? Thank you. Y'all being so modest, like, no, I'll just steal his. <laughs> but here's the thing. If I told you I have a hundred dollar bill to give you, and I'm going to give you a hundred dollar bill. You'd be like, all right, thank you. But what if I said, well, wait a minute, before that, I'm going to take that hundred bill. I'm going to stomp on that hundred dollar bill. I'm going to put it underneath my foot and I'm going to rub it in the mud. And I pull that, that hundred dollar bill that has mud all over. And I said, now, do you still want that hundred dollar bill? What's your answer? Of course you do. Now, what if I took it and wiped it off, dried it off, and then I drew a bunch of mean things about it, uh, about you on that hundred dollar bill. And I said, hey, do you still want this hundred dollar bill? What would you You say, yeah, what if I cut it all up, cut pieces out of it, right? Just left the two serial numbers. You got to have that on there to make it work. But when I cut pieces out of it, you came and recognized it's a $100 bill. And I said, do you want this $100 bill? What would you say? You would say yes. Why? Because it is the value of that that $100 bill has already been predetermined, not by you, but by the mint. The value of that $100 bill is not determined by how much mud it has on it, how many cuts it has in it, how many nasty things it has drawn on it. The $100 bill has been valued by the mint, and it carries that value no matter what condition it is in, as long as the two serial numbers are still together. That's you. You don't get to look at your life and say, I got a little mud on me. I must not be valuable. 
You don't get to look at your life and say, I got some cuts. I got some scars. Anybody else got some scars? I got some scars. Some of us right now got some wounds. You got some wounds? You know, the difference between scars and wounds, we're going to preach a series on this, I promise you. The difference between scars and wounds, wounds are fresh. If I touch it, it still hurts, right? But a scar doesn't still hurt. A scar, when I touch it, brings me back to a moment that I survived and got through. But a wound, it's still fresh. But it don't matter how many scars you have on you. You're still valuable. It don't matter how many wounds you have in you. You're still valuable because your value has not been determined by what I think about you. Your value has been determined by the creator of you. No one gets to devalue you. Come on. Come on. That wasn't even in my notes, but it made it. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to go back there real quick. I want to show you something. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, now this is talking about, we're going back to Adam and Eve. Real quick, the story of Adam and Eve found in Genesis 3. And the story goes, God created man. Oh, this is good. I'll I'll throw this out there for you, free of charge, promise. So God creates man, right? And he puts them in the garden. Y'all remember that? God creates Adam and he creates, come on, he creates who? Y'all need to talk back to me. He creates Adam and he creates Eve, there you go, right? And he takes them, he puts them in the garden, and he says to them, he says, you can eat of any tree in the garden that you want to. Just don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? Y'all remember that story? Right. Do you know what tree was in the garden? Do you know what tree was in the garden? Knowledge of good and evil. Do you know what else tree, what other tree was in the garden? The tree of life. Why didn't I eat from that one? Right? So he creates them, male and female, he creates them. And and on the sixth day, the last thing he says about man and in general humanity is he says, and they were, you remember? Good. And they were good. Male and female, and he created them good. Oh, but you know what it doesn't say? He created them perfect. Come on, sometimes we think in order to be good, we have to be perfect, but it never said that he created them perfect. It said he created them and he made them good. Oh, that was good. That was so, that was so good. It's going to click, I know. Think about that. If it's about getting back and being perfect, you don't have a chance. But if it's getting back to identifying as good, because God says you're good, Oh, that's a different story, isn't it? So Genesis 3 and 6, they're in the garden. They're tending to the garden. And, and, and like a lot of these uh, creation myths, these, these, these um, humanity myths that back in this time in ancient Near Eastern times, they, they have talking animals. Anybody ever read the Genesis story, get to the part where the snake talk, starts talking, and you're like, wait a minute. Do you know what's crazy? Is this become so normal in church that we read that and we're like, there was a talking snake. And people in the world were like, bro, there's a talking snake. Right? So then there's this talking snake. If you don't think it's weird, it's weird, guys. And the snake slithers up and the snake looks at the woman and says to the woman, hey, um, 
can you not eat any fruit? And she said, no, 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 we can eat any fruit in here except for the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We just can't eat that. As a matter of fact, we can't even touch that because if we touch it, we're going to die. And the snake, the talking snake, says to Eve, he says, you're not going to surely die for, for God knows that when you eat it, you're going to be just like him, knowing good and evil. You'll be just like God. See, listen, this is what he did. He said, Eve, God almost likes you. God almost likes you, right? God gave you almost everything, but he's still withholding something from you. And that fruit right there, that'll give you exactly what you think you need. That new job, it'll give you what you think you need. That money, it'll give you what you think you need. That relationship, it'll give you what you think you need. That chocolate cupcake, it will not give you what you think you need. Because then you got to go on the treadmill at 12.5 or 3.5 miles an hour and run with Pastor Kim. But it'll give you what you need. And so verse 6 says this. It says, and the woman was what, church? Convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked what? Delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. And so she took some of the fruit and ate it. We want a dog Eve. Right? We want a dog. The church has gotten it wrong. The church won't say, well, it's Eve's fault. No, it won't. It was Adam's fault, y'all. It says later on in Scripture, Adam was the one that, or Eve was the one that was deceived. Adam was the one that was like, okay, let's eat. Right? And we look at Eve like, oh, Eve. But you see what happened? She had, she had, someone had created doubt in her life. And, and created doubt in her life and made her feel as though she was incomplete. And so what do you do when you find yourself feeling incomplete is you look for things that are delicious and you look for things that are going to give you wisdom so you can be better than what you think you are. And so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. And then she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, say at that moment, at that moment, their eyes were what? Boop. They opened. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt what, church? Shame at their nakedness. They, they suddenly felt shame. It was, it was instantaneous. They felt shame. Not guilt. I've done something wrong. But shame. I am wrong. I felt, they felt shame at their nakedness. And it says, and so they sewed fig leaves together to what? When they identified themselves in a shameful way, when they took on the identity of shame, the very first thing they did was hide themselves from each other. And the same thing is true for us, that when shame becomes the low-lying hum that's running in our lives, we, the first thing that we do is hide ourselves from those who are closest to us. Ask me how I know. Because I've been there. I've done it. I begin to hide parts of my life that I don't want exposed because if someone can see who I really am, then they would agree with what I already think about myself, which is shameful, unworthy, unloved not needed, devalued. And so I got to cover that part up. So you don't think about me the same way that I think about me. I need you to think about me better than that. So they sewed fig leaves and they covered themselves up from each other, right? 
Go to the next verse. It says, and, and when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. And so they, what church? They hid from the Lord God among the trees. And then the Lord called out to the man, where are you? Where are you? So when they looked at them, see, you know, when, they, when they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it was in that very moment that they reserved the right for themselves to be the God of their own lives. And so what that means is now I hold the right to determine in life what is good and what is evil. Do you know that wars are waged on a regular basis between two groups of people based on this very thing? This people over here says this is good and they're evil. And these people over here say, no, 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 you, we are good and you're evil. And so they fight it out based on the judgment that they carry about the other person. We did the same thing. Adam and Eve did the same thing. They, they immediately looked at themselves and they judged for themselves that they were unworthy. God didn't say you're unworthy. God didn't even show up when they were trying to play hide and seek from the king of hide and seek. God didn't even show up and say you're unworthy. God said, where are you? He didn't say you're unworthy. He called out to them. He communicated the value to them. Where are you? I'm looking for you. You don't look for things that aren't lost. Where are you? I want you here with me. That where are you is a call to them. It's not like God didn't know where they were at. It was an echo back. Where are you? What was he doing? He was getting them to answer the question. Where am I? Where I'm not is in the presence of God. Where I'm at is hiding behind some salad in a bush somewhere. That's where I'm at. But I'm not in the place that I should be. I'm in the place that shame put me. And that shame creates this false identity. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, real quick, a chapter before that. It's interesting, isn't it? Genesis 2.25, it says, this is when God creates them. He got done with them. He said they were good. And it says, and now man and his wife were both what? Naked. But they felt no they were both naked, but they felt no shame. Isn't it interesting? A chapter later, it says, and their eyes were open, and they saw they were naked, and they felt shame. You say, they were, were they naked after that? Wait, wait a minute. Let's back up. Were they clothed before they ate the fruit? Come on. Were they clothed before they ate the fruit? No. They were naked. Were they naked after they ate the fruit? Yes. What changed in that moment. They were naked beforehand and God said, you were good. They were naked afterwards and they felt shame. It's because they looked at themselves and said, there's a little bit of mud on me. I'm no longer worth what I once was. There's some cuts on me. I'm no longer worth what I once was. I've been devalued. So I need to hide. Brene Brown is an expert on the topics of vulnerability and transparency and shame. And if you've never 
uh, read anything by Brene Brown, let me encourage you to grab some of her books. They're phenomenal. Or you can go to YouTube and you can type in Brene Brown TED Talks, and she's got some phenomenal TED Talks. But she's an expert at vulnerability and transparency and, and shame. And this is what she writes. I have two things. I gave you one, but I have two. It says this. It says, shame, she says, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing, listen, it is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we experience, done, or fail to do makes us unworthy of connection. She also says this. She also says this. She says, shame corrodes the very part of us. Excuse me. Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of change. Did you hear me? Shame corrodes the very part of us that believes we are capable of changing. When we allow shame to become our identity, when we allow what we think about us to become more powerful than what God has said about us, we find ourselves on that treadmill and capable of, of really changing. And so that identity of shame leads to, to three things. I want you to hear me. Number one is, is your, your identity, your shameful identity will leave you or, or, or cause you to be vulnerable to perfectionism. Perfectionism. Do you know anybody in your life that's a perfectionist? I'm a perfectionist. Just by default, the way my brain works, I'm a perfectionist. But when you, when you increase shame in my life, when shame increases in my life, or I begin to believe the identity of shame in my life, my perfectionism goes on full tilt, y'all. It gets crazy. And do you know what happens when I get that shame running in my life and, I, and I'm dealing with perfectionism and i got to figure out how to get this release out, how i got to figure out how to fix it? Do you know what happens to me? I go home. And I clean my entire house. Somebody like, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? Well, for me, it's nothing wrong. It's everybody else in my house that hates it when I go into perfection mode because I find everything wrong with the house and make it everybody's responsibility to help me fix it. Why do I do that? Now, you might just love cleaning your house. This doesn't apply to you. You might be a perfectionist pre-shame. This maybe still applies to you, but listen, okay? I did it because it's the thing that I can fix and straighten up on the outside because on the inside, everything is chaotic. Everything is chaotic. And so I got to make everything outwardly look good to get away from what's going on on the inside of me. Here's the reality. You're not perfect. Come on, there's peace in that. We have a hard time with that, but, but you're not perfect. And let me let you know another secret. Everybody else knows you're not perfect. Why do we try to convince people we're per We know you stink too, right? I mean, you do everything just about that everybody else does. You, you're human. You're not, you're not perfect. The failure rate of human beings is 
just in case you didn't know that. 100%. And so we'll adapt the same identity, and, and, and it leaves us vulnerable to perfectionism, and it literally will drive the people who are closest to us away from us. I don't want to be around you. The other thing that happens is we become critical of ourselves. Oh, this is so true. We become hypercritical of ourselves when shame is wreaking havoc in our lives. When we've ad- adopted that identity, we become hypercritical of ourselves. And here's the thing about becoming hypercritical of yourself, that when you become hypercritical of yourself, guess what you become hypercritical of? Others. Isn't it true? I hate this about me. Let me point it out in you. Can't stand this. You ever notice how they do this and that and blah, 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 blah? Man, my, my, uh, my wife has done a great job. Kim has done a great job over the years of helping me in these moments when I become really critical of people. Now, there's sometimes when you're driving down the road and you make a smart remark about somebody and you're just joking, you know? Anybody do that? Nobody? Just the pastor? <laughs> just the pastor drives by people and like, look at that, dude. There's a difference between doing that and finding something out about that person and just railing that person. I can't believe this person. Blah, 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 blah. They get on my nerves, this and that. And all they want is this and all they want is that. And blah, 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 blah. And, and Kim has gotten so good because this is what she does. She looks at me and she says, hey, hey, are you letting God love you right now? That's not what I want to hear in those moments. It's not what I want to hear in those moments because I can sit there and say, yes, and she knows I'm lying. Because if I was letting God love on me in that moment, I wouldn't be so critical about this person over there. If I would allow God to say, you are good, instead of me saying, you're not good, I would be loving these people. Not pointing out all their flaws. Loving them. Shame causes us to be critical of ourselves, which in, and by default causes us to be critical of of others. Pastor Craig Rochelle said this. I heard this a couple years ago. So good. He said, shamed people will shame people. I'll say it again because that was really good. Y'all should have been tweeting that. It says, and do it like they do in the office. Shamed people will shame people and put Craig Rochelle in the scratch out and put Pastor Chris away. Y'all remember that from the office? Moving on. All right. Some of y'all are holy. Watch those shows. The third thing that shame does is it causes us to use self-defeating thoughts to shield ourselves from disappointment. And we're always looking for the worst-case scenarios. For people who deal with shame, and this is true in my life, when when shame was running its script in my life, it's that low-lying hum. It just doesn't ever seem to go away. Some days you wake up and you can't really put your finger on it, but you know it's there, and it starts showing up when things start going well, and you find yourself going, yeah, but this isn't going to last. The carpet's coming out at some point. It's going to, it always does. It's always too good to be true. That's where shame will keep you. All three of these things, they really focus on the I am not, what I am not, right? But freedom from shame comes when we shift our focus to I am or to the I am. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Yo, I think I actually might be done by 11 today, y'all. I see where I'm at on my, my outline. All right. 
Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, the writer of Hebrews, whoever he or she was, says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, those who have gone before us to the life of faith, it says, listen, listen, it says, let us strip off every weight that slows us down. Do you know sometimes the things that are slowing you down in your Christian walk are not even, it's not even sin. Sometimes it's not sin that slows you down from doing what it is God's called you to do. Sometimes it's just stuff that weighs you down. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially now the sin that so easily trips us up. And then it says, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Leave it right there. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. If I left you with just that verse, I pulled that verse out of context and said, these are the things we need to understand. We need to get rid of the things that slow us down the weights. We need to stop messing around with the sin that trips us up, and we need to continue to press forward and run the race that God's called us to. You might think to yourself, okay, great, but how? How do I do that? You ever heard something really good in church? Not here, but any really good in church I and mean, left with, with a failed how-to? Like, that sounds really good. How do I do it? Well, the next verse tells you. We do what? We do this. We do this, getting rid of the weights that slow us down, the sin that trips us up, and we run the race that God's called us to run. We do this by keeping our eyes on who? That's the Sunday school answer. Keeping our eyes on Jesus. He's the champion who initiates and perfects your faith. Another thing, he's the the author and the finisher of your faith. Do you know your faith that you had, your faith that you have to believe God for the salvation that he's given you? That faith didn't even come from you. Did you know that? You can't muster up enough faith to believe God for salvation. The faith to believe God for salvation is in God himself. It's in the message of Jesus Christ. You see, someone tells you about Jesus, and it awakens faith in your life, and you reach out and you grab a hold of it, and you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And it is Jesus who continues you on that journey of faith. It says, we do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the what? Because of the what? The joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne for the joy awaiting him. Another translation says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy. Do you know what the joy was that was set before Christ? Do you know what it was? It was you. It was you for the joy set before him, for the joy of bringing you into the family of God, for the joy of getting to know you on a personal, for the joy that is you set before him, he endured the cross. You are worth living for and you are worth dying for. For the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Jesus stepped into humanity's failure to restore what they thought they had lost. Isn't it interesting? Now, let's see, if I go that way, I will not get done before 11. Isn't it interesting? I'm going to do it anyways. Isn't it interesting, right, that we read into the text something that was never there? 
that we think that because sin came into the world, that it has permanently separated God and man. That's not in Scripture. That's read into it. That, that somehow when, when we read the story of, of Genesis and, and, and Adam and Eve are removed from the garden, that at that point God was like, you had your chance. He wipes his hands of you, and they're off on their own. And that's it. God is in the garden, and they're over here. But it doesn't take very much longer as you're reading that to realize that God didn't stay in the garden while they walked out, that God walked out with them, that God has never not walked with them. That God was there with them. The first murderer on the, in the world. God doesn't turn around and stone him to death. He puts a mark on his head and protects him. That's unfair. That's grace. I, I, I don't know what to tell you. And you go through and God walks alongside humanity over and over again. If God appears to be absent in the Old Testament, it's not because God has gone somewhere. It's because always, because always Israel has turned her back on God. But God has never turned his back on them or you or you. We fix our eyes on, on Jesus. That, that word fixed there, or we keep our eyes, it's the word fixed. It, it literally means to have blinders. You ever seen a horse-drawn carriage? Anybody ever seen a horse-drawn carriage? You know that the horses, they have blinders on their eyes, and that's so that they don't become spooked or distracted by anything else that's going on around them, that they are able to fix their vision straight forward, and they can focus on what's before them. It seems to be that what is before you is more important than what's going on around you. Just ask Peter when he got on that water. What is before you is more important than what's going on around you. I would dare say even what is behind you. So he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus because Jesus is the expression of our value to God. Oh, this is good. And Jesus is the heart of God for our broken humanity. Jesus is the expression of love for everyone who feels unlovable. And Jesus is the proof that no matter how far you run, how much you mess up, how many times you fail, God will never leave you nor forsake you. I preached this message months ago here. I preached it last week next door, that, that never not message from Hebrews 13, 5. You remember that? Never not will I leave you, nor never not will I forsake you. Those are not double negatives in the English that cancel out. Those are a quadruple negative in the Hebrew or the Greek that doubles down on the promise that God had. He ain't going nowhere. A statement that, that means well when you hear people say it is actually very damaging. And it's this. Because of Jesus... I am loved. Have you ever heard someone say that, that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin, he sees Jesus? Have you ever had anybody say that to you? I have. That when God looks at it's because of Jesus Christ, God can do X, Y, and Z. It's because the problem with that is, is that you put Jesus in front of you, and you're still stuck in the fact that you're shameful and dirty and unworthy because if the only way that God can look at you is if he sees Jesus, then surely God might think something's wrong with you. But God doesn't see you and see Jesus instead. God sees you as you've always been and as you were always supposed to be. It's Jesus that helps us see that we are good. Jesus does not make me good to God. One says you're only loved because of Jesus. But the reality is, is you've always been loved. 
You are loved. You always be loved. And it's Jesus who is the proof of this love. It's Jesus who's the proof of this love. Do me a favor. We're done. Bow your heads. Close your eyes real quick. And I want you to hear me again. I want to read this to you. Speak this over you. Listen to me. You are right now in this moment. You are loved. You are adored. You are accepted. You are forgiven. You are whole. You are not a half person looking for somebody else to make you complete. You are already complete. You are whole. You are valued, and your value has been determined by your creator. You are strong. You are bold. You are a child of God. You are worth living for, and you are worth dying for. You are the reason that God put on flesh. You are the apple of God's eye. You are his favorite. He has an eight by ten of you on his mantle, and when he opens up his wallet and shows off his favorite child, he points to your picture because you are loved and you are adored. And when we know that and we believe that, shame is not our identity. Our identity is we are good. Let me pray for you. Father, I just thank you for every person right now in this room who has heard these words this morning. And I know, Father, that sometimes we can hear a message like this and it fights us in our minds. We have some some cognitive dissonance that happens. And I just pray, Father, that these words would sink so deeply and anchor in our hearts and our minds, Father, that as we go throughout our week this week, God, we will just be reminded about how good you are to us, God, and how you've made us good. Father, when those moments rise where shame tries to reclaim its identity, Father, I pray that we would just fix our eyes on you. For you're the author and finisher of our faith. And, Father, we thank you for loving us as radically as you do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. All right, fam, we'll see you next week.